This morning's reading comes from John chapter 16, verses 16 to 33. In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me. Some of his disciples said to one another, What does he mean by saying, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me, and because I am going to the Father? They kept asking, What does he mean by a little while? We don't understand what he is saying. Jesus saw that they wanted to ask him about this, so he said to them, Are you asking one another what I meant when I said, In a little while you will see me no more, and then after a little while you will see me? I tell you the truth. You will weep and mourn while the world rejoices. You will grieve, but your grief will turn to joy. A woman giving birth to a child has pain because her time has come. But when her baby is born, she forgets the anguish because of her joy that a child is born into the world. So with you, now is your time of grief. But I will see you again, and you will rejoice, and no one will take away your joy. In that day you will no longer ask me anything. I tell you the truth. My Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive, and your joy will be complete. Though I have been speaking figuratively, a time is coming when I will no longer use this kind of language, but will tell you plainly about my Father. In that day you will ask in my name. I am not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. No, the Father himself loves you because you have loved me and have believed that I came from God. I came from the Father and entered the world. Now I am leaving the world and going back to the Father. Then Jesus' disciples said, Now you are speaking clearly and without figures of speech. Now we can see that you know all things and that you do not even need to have anyone ask you questions. This makes us believe that you came from God. You believe at last, Jesus answered. But a time is coming and has come when you will be scattered, each to his own home. You will leave me all alone, yet I am not alone, for my Father is with me. I have told you these things so that in me you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. This is the Gospel of Christ. Those around them don't comfort them. They don't grieve with them. The world rejoices. And yet that deep, dark, horrendous grief will turn to joy. Verse 22, now is your time of grief, but I will see you again and you will rejoice and no one will take away your joy. You see, it's not just that they returned to the situation before Jesus went away. The situation's changed. This is an unexpressible joy, a joy that no one can take because Jesus is risen. The resurrection of Jesus changes the world forever. Jesus illustrates it with this little 
thing about a baby, doesn't he? A pregnant lady giving birth. I remember vividly being in a hospital ward in Japan some four and a half years ago. And I remember the pain as for 10 hours, Charlie squeezed my hand and nearly crushed it. But glad you laughed. I thought somebody's going to say, how dare you say that when your wife was the one in pain. But of course, actually, Charlie was the one who went through pain. And yet for 10, more, for more hours, I think 15 hours, 16 hours, uh, she was in agony. And yet in that moment, as the baby's placed in her hand, the joy surpasses the pain. The anguish is forgotten. Not that the pain wasn't real. Of course it was. Katrina's looking slightly nervous as I talk about pain. The pain's real, but it's surpassed by the joy that comes. As a new state comes into being, a baby is born, a new human life. Well, in the same way, Jesus, who was once covered in blood, face disfigured, beaten, dead, laid in a tomb, began to rot and smell. He's alive. He's wonderfully risen. And not with a disfigured body, but perfect again. A new, resurrected body. And the disciples see him, and they'll rejoice. Well, a couple of things flow from this. First, the disciples rejoice because things begin to make sense. Look at verse 23. In that day... You will no longer ask me anything. Verse 23 is a little bit confusing because there's two senses, I think, of asking. In the first half, it means they don't need to ask for more information. But in the second half, it's about asking the Father, for asking the Father for things. But in this first half, he's saying things will be clear to you. You won't have so many questions. And the disciples knew, as everyone in the Old Testament knew, that God was going to rescue his people, that a king was going to come and would gather God's people together and overturn all the wrongs of this world, deal with sin, deal with pain, deal with grief. But if that's what Jesus is, if that's who Jesus is, why on earth is he going away? Why is he going away? I wonder if you've ever bought an impulse purchase on Trade Me. Maybe you've seen something, and it's just a couple of dollars, and you think, well, I'll just bid for that. You ever done that? I did that the other day. I bought a typewriter. Now, some of the older people think, why on earth would you want a typewriter? But I think if you've grown up in a generation where computers have only been in boxes, where you can't see anything move, there is something quite incredible about this typewriter. And you can press a button, and you see the keys move, and I've kind of cleaned it up and fit. some people are laughing at me thinking why on earth older people are thinking what is he talking about but it's fascinating you, you can see it moving you can see how it works and younger people go and train me and buy a typewriter but but it, it's so, in a sense it's so obvious how it works that I began to think why did nobody invent this before it's so obvious why on earth did it take 400 years after the printing press for us to get typewriters but of course that's the point isn't it Looking at the finished product, it's obvious. But beforehand, somebody has to dream it up. Well, in the same way for us, it's obvious, isn't it? Jesus needs to die. The sins of the world need to be paid for. God's wrath needs to be poured out either on sinners or on the Savior. And then Jesus rises again. The sacrifice is, is paid in full. And he sends a spirit and gathers people into the church. And one day he'll come again. And that will bring in heaven on earth. As every knee bows, where, where sin is dealt with, suffering is ended, 
the other side of the cross, it didn't make sense to the disciples. And yet, in a little while, Jesus rises and it clicks. You will not need to ask me anything because it makes sense. The king dies and rises. Friends, I wonder if you realize how privileged we are. We read in Peter that those in the Old Testament longed to know what God is doing. The prophets strained and strained to see what is God's rescue plan. And we can see it so clearly that we look at the disciples and think, duh, it's obvious. What a privilege, what a joy. But we don't just see the plan. We don't just know in our heads the plan. We rejoice because we get to experience the plan too. Because the resurrection means Jesus has defeated death. Now it's different for us, isn't it? For the disciples, in a moment, as they saw Jesus come out of the tomb, that joy instantly changed. The grief went and joy came. That's not the same for us, is it? If we're grieving, we will not see our loved one again in this world. And we grieve and we weep and we feel alone. But the resurrection of Jesus does mean that we will see them again. If they've died in Christ, then gloriously we will see them on the last day. They will be raised up. The resurrection does mean death is not the end of our bodies. It does mean that our bodies, as they fall apart, as our minds decay, as our loved one almost is not like the one we knew because their mind is so gone, it's not the end. Because Jesus has defeated death and he will raise them as he'll raise us and we'll see them again. Isn't that a wonderful truth? And it doesn't mean now that we don't grieve, that we don't weep, but we don't grieve as those with no hope. We grieve as those who through the tears and bitterness know that one day we'll see those people again. Friends, if you're not a Christian, don't you long to know that? To know that you will see your family members again as you as a family put your trust in Jesus. Don't we long for the people outside today, shopping, driving around, whatever they're doing, to know this wonderful hope. It's terrific. Rejoice, Jesus is risen. Jesus is risen from the dead. And then second, rejoice in the new relationship with the Father. Rejoice in a new relationship with the Father. Verse 23, I tell you the truth, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. Until now, you have not asked me for anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. And I think the point is, there's a new relationship. Previously, the disciples didn't ask, didn't ask the Father. But now, in Jesus' name, through Jesus' name, they can go directly to the Father. Look at verse 26. In that day, you will ask in my name. I'm not saying that I will ask the Father on your behalf. That is to say, we don't need Jesus to be our go-between. Through Jesus' death and resurrection, we can go directly to the Father. We can go into the throne room of heaven and speak to him. Verse 27, because the Father himself loves you, because you have loved me and believed that I came from God. This idea of in Jesus' name, it's not a magic formula. It means everything that Jesus did on the basis of his death and resurrection. He, he ushers us in 
to the throne room. He gives us access to God. I guess one of the most sought-after places to get access to in the world would be the Oval Office, wouldn't it? Into the place where the president sits. And, of course, you or I can't go there. There's many, many gatekeepers. There'll be the Marines at the the front of the White House. And then even if you could get into the the White House, then there'll be all kinds of secretaries and, and and other people to keep you out of that room. But I wonder if you've ever seen that picture of JFK and JFK is sitting in the Oval Office, and he's in one photo sat at his desk, and another he's got a meeting of some senior bigwigs. And on the floor, under the desk, playing happily, is his son, Bobby Jr. And though the others are only there because of their permission, because they've gone through the gatekeepers, Bobby Jr. is there because his dad is the president. It's a wonderful picture of access. He can play at the president's feet. Well, in the same way, we too, because of the Lord Jesus, can go through his name, by his name, into the throne room of heaven. I wonder if you're a Christian, do you feel the full impact of these words? The Father himself loves you. I don't know what your earthly father is like. My father was a hopeless father. But the Father in heaven, the Father himself loves you. Because you have loved Jesus. If you're wondering what Christianity is about this morning. Do you see it's not about rules. It's not about religion. It's not about coming to this place and sitting through a boring sermon or taking communion. It's about relationship. Relationship with the Lord Jesus. Relationship with God the Father. Access to the throne room of heaven. We should rejoice. Well, we have access to to the Father in heaven. It's a terrific privilege. But you see, we need to use it. We need to make use of the privilege. Look again at verse 24. Up until now, you have not asked for anything in my name. Ask and you'll receive and your joy will be complete. Verse 23, in some ways, is is the prosperity gospel preacher's dream, isn't it? My Father, I tell you the truth, my Father will give you whatever you ask in my name. And the prosperity gospel preacher says, just ask in the name of Jesus. Just have enough faith and you can have a Lamborghini. You can have your mortgage paid off. You can have a yacht to go around wherever you go on your yacht. But that's not quite what this is saying. But I feel like a sort of sneaky lawyer. Because I don't want to kind of... This this is a wonderful promise of God. I'm sorry to any lawyers. But I feel like a sneaky lawyer. And I don't want to kind of hedge this in with caveats. God is saying he will hear us and he will give us exactly what is for our best. In chapter 15, Jesus said this, if you remain in me and my words remain in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. But I guess the point is if we're remaining in Jesus and his words are dwelling in us, then that shapes what we long for. God longs to give us good things. But the problem is what we think is good is not necessarily what God thinks is good. I do somewhere deep down think if I could drive a convertible sports car and buy a nice house and have eternal youth, then I'd be happy. And God says, no, there's something more. God cares, doesn't he, for our character and our souls and longs that we'd be like Jesus. And I think actually deep down we know that, don't we? 
Though we see a big house or a sports car or a luxury yacht and we think it'd be nice to go in that. Actually, what is more impressive? Somebody with a wonderful home or somebody who lost everything in the earthquake and yet somehow through gritted teeth and teary eyes is able to rejoice knowing they're in the center of their father's care. Or the lady in perfect health without a care in the world or the Christian whose body is racked with cancer and yet they cannot but help be joyful. They cannot but help serve. They never grumble. It's striking, isn't it? One looks so good and yet actually one is, the other is much, much, much more precious. God does care for material things. He tells, tells us, doesn't he? Pray this day for your daily bread. This week I needed to raise some money if I was going to do something. And I, I didn't know if I could, so I prayed and I asked God for that material thing. And God generously, through his generous people, provided that money. He does care about the material. The issue is he cares for so much more. He cares for our souls, for our characters. I wonder, friends, are we praying for those things that we might experience the joy of having them answered? Just think back over some of the things we've seen these weeks in John. We're told that the Spirit will come to convict the world of sins. Are we praying like that? Are we praying for our neighbors, for those in Shirley? Holy Spirit, convict the world. Father, send your Spirit to convict them that they might see their sin and bow before Jesus. And we'd know the joy of more people being gathered as our prayer is answered. Are we praying, Father, help me to bear fruit Change me. Make me more like Jesus so I don't keep snapping at my wife. I don't keep grumbling. And as it's answered, as tiny bit by tiny bit, the Spirit changes us and we rejoice as our Father has heard our prayer. Friends, they're the kind of prayers God promises to answer and loves to. And they're the prayers that are for our best. wonder, are you experiencing that joy? I wonder, are you praying like that? If not, why not? This evening, why not this afternoon? Get into your armchair and pray like that. Maybe ask God, help me, Heavenly Father, to know how to pray. God promises he'll hear you and answer. Well, rejoice, Jesus is risen. Rejoice in this new relationship with the Father. And then finally, is this challenge to respond we see in verse 29 the disciples' response. They say, now you are speaking clearly and without figures. This makes us believe that you came from God. But it's strange. We, we, we didn't dwell on verse 25, but Jesus says, a time is coming when I'll not use figurative language. And in a sense, the things they say show us they haven't got it. Now is not the time when Jesus speaks clearly. And Jesus' response, you believe at last? You can almost hear the sigh, can't you? You believe at last? Do you really believe? And the fact that they'll be scattered shows they haven't really got it. But 32, a time is coming and has come when you'll be scattered, when you'll leave me alone. But I wonder why Jesus tells them that. I don't think it's particularly to rebuke them. It is a rebuke to their overconfidence, isn't it? They think they'll stand and Jesus says, no, in a few hours you'll be scattered, each to your own. He tells us in 33, I've told you these things so you may have peace. 
Now, these things refers to everything he said in these last two or three chapters. But they also refer to this falling away, this scattering. And I guess it would have been a great comfort to the disciples to know that though they're about to fail Jesus, Jesus knew and loved them. It would have been a comfort to know that the father knew they would abandon his son in his hour of need. And yet the father still loves them. And friends, isn't that a comfort to us? We don't perfectly follow Jesus. We do love him. And yet, like the disciples, we fail. We waver in our faith and in our faithfulness. But it's not about that. It's about Jesus. And he loves us. He died for us. He knows we'll fail. But the question is, will we trust him? Will we take what he said in these past few chapters on board and so enjoy his peace? I've told you these things, verse 33, so that you may have peace. In this world you will have trouble, but take heart, I have overcome the world. And it's as if Jesus opens his arms and says, will you believe what I've said to you, all these, these chapters, and have peace? In the world there'll be trouble, but in me you may have peace peace. But this peace depends on getting these words deep, deep, deep in our hearts so that when trouble comes, we can trust him. I um, mentioned the birth of Wren, ten, ten or, uh, not ten or so years ago, four or so, five or so years ago. Uh, and I remember going home from that hospital. And in Japan, mother stays in hospital for four or five nights. And I went home on my own and I collapsed into bed and I woke up in the morning, and I replayed the previous day in my mind. And I, I wept. I don't often weep, but I wept partly with joy that Jesus had entrusted me with this little baby to look after. But as I was weeping, those tears of joy turned to sadness. I remembered a, a, a warning in 2 Timothy. Everyone who wants to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. And I thought, that little baby, hold him almost in one hand, so pure, so harmless. If he grows up to follow Jesus, he'll be persecuted. And I thought with great sadness at that. It's what Jesus says here, in the world you will have trouble. And yet in the midst of that trouble, there can be peace. Take heart, Jesus has overcome the world. Friends, I wonder, do we believe it? As we go into our offices tomorrow, oh, you're from that church that's leaving and people get cross. Do we believe it? Do we have peace? As people mock us, as uh, people laugh at us, as we grieve, as our bodies begin to fall apart, do we have peace because we know Jesus has overcome the world? I want to end with this. These words in the King James, this take heart in the King James Version is this. Be of good cheer, which incidentally are the words that Bishop Latimer said to Bishop Ridley as they were burnt at the stake. Some of you may know this story. Uh, it's, a great, it's a great testimony. It's a great reason why we are faithful Anglicans, because as Latimer and Ridley some four or five hundred years ago were burnt at the stake, for remaining true to the Bible. 
and remaining true that the only way to heaven is through Jesus, by faith alone, they were condemned to die. And they were led out into uh, the, the middle of a big street, the broad street in Oxford. And a, funer- uh, a pyre of a fire was, was uh, there. The wood was set. And they chained Latter and Ridley to a stake in the middle of the fire. And as they began to light the, uh, the wood, all around them chaos. You couldn't think of worse trouble. And yet this is what Latimer says to Ridley. Be of good cheer. Take heart, Master Ridley, and play the man. We shall this day light such a candle by God's grace in England as I trust shall never be put out. And in the midst of trouble, he finds the peace of Jesus. He burns and dies, yet he knows that death is not the end as he commends his spirit to God the Father, risen in power. And by God's grace, the world did not win. The light continued not just in England, but people took it out to the world and brought it to this land, didn't they? And though we are surrounded by chaos now, Jesus has overcome the world. The light will continue to burn. The question is, will we believe Jesus' words and so find peace in the midst of it? Just a little while and I go, and then I will see you again. Friend, let's rejoice Jesus is risen, risen in power. Rejoice, we have a new relationship with the Father and let's trust him and find the peace, the peace that transcends all understanding. Let's pray it be true of each one of us this week and this day. Just a moment to respond in the quiet of our own hearts. Father, as we look out, there is much that we see that troubles us. And as we look in, many of us are grieving and distressed. And so, Father, in the midst of our tears, in the midst of our troubles, in the midst of our sadness, please help us to trust these words. Help us to rejoice that Jesus is risen. Help us to rejoice that we can go into that very throne room and speak to you, call you our Father. And grant us, please, that peace, that peace that transcends understanding, that though the world rages, we in the middle of it might be calm. We ask it for ourselves and for each person here, for Jesus' glory. Amen.